Uh, if you have Bibles, we are in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 today, so you can go ahead and make your way there. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles that's, that's under your seat, uh, page 961 is where that's at. In, uh, in 2002, there was a British philosopher, her name is Honora O'Neill, and she argued in a series of radio broadcasts uh, that we as a society are suffering from what she called a crisis of trust. So, for example, uh, if we were to kind of take a straw poll this morning and kind of, kind of ask you questions and you were, we were to say, do you trust the government? Probably most of us would have some reservations about just blanketly saying, yes, we trust the government. I don't care what your political affiliation is. You'd probably say, no, I don't, you know, there's some aspects that I don't trust the government. Um, do you trust doctors? Maybe. Maybe on certain things, maybe not. Um, do you trust corporations? Do you trust corporations to make good and responsible decisions? Um, do you trust pastors and ministry leaders? Maybe don't answer that because that's close to home for me. I might not want to know that. Um, the, there have been enough noteworthy bad examples in all of these categories and many more that, that leaves us by and large skeptical. Like we, we wonder if we can trust anyone or anything. That's the question that I want you to think about as we start our series together in the Apostles' Creed. We're kicking off this new series that we're going to be in uh, throughout the summer, really from now till almost the end of August. And if you've been with us at Liberty, or you've been in different churches or traditions where you use the Apostles' Creed, it'll be familiar uh, to many of you. But whether you've considered it in detail before, whether it's relatively new for you, uh, my hope is that this summer will really help us in a new way, in a deeper way, perceive the meaning and the value that this brings to Christian faith and Christian practice. The word creed uh, comes from the Latin word for belief. And belief is this concept that is really at the very core of Christianity. But when Christians speak of, of belief, it's something that's far deeper than just wishful or hopeful thinking. Belief is really a deep-seated confidence. It's really a wholehearted trust in a God who has revealed himself, in a God who has and is redeeming a people for himself. And so in the midst of this societal crisis of trust, I'm going to propose that we need creed. Right? We have a need for creed. We need something that we can believe in. And as we'll explore this morning and then continue to explore throughout this series, it has to come from something that's far more rooted than the kinds of fleeting trends, the kinds of fleeting things that we often look to. The Apostles' Creed, even as we recited it together this morning, it proposes that there is one who remains trustworthy, and there is truth that remains trustworthy ever since truth itself was embodied in the person of Jesus Christ himself. And so an important note as we get into this, the Apostles' Creed itself is not in the text of Scripture. So if you look and flip through your Bibles looking for the Apostles' Creed, you won't find it the way that we have it. But the truths that the Apostles' Creed contains very much are in the text of Scripture. We're going to look at those in the weeks to come. But for today, as we kick off the series, really, I just want us to see that the concept of creed, the concept of creed itself is found in Scripture. A creed uh, is a short, succinct summary of the core of Christian belief, uh, the core of the Christian faith. And we have several of these summaries in the text of Scripture itself. One of them is what we're going to read today. It comes from the Apostle Paul as he writes this letter to the church at Corinth, what we have and know in our Bibles as 1 Corinthians. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11, and then I'll pray for the rest of our time together. So follow along with me as I read. 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which, is, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, it's another name for the apostle Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as, one, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Living God, help us to hear your word with open hearts that we may truly understand. An understanding that we may believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and in all obedience that we would seek your honor and your glory in all that we do. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. At, uh, at Liberty Church, uh, we talk a lot about our core values as a church of worship, community, and mercy. Uh, worship is all about our vertical relationship with God. It's about loving God. Community is about the relationships that, as Christians, we get to enjoy with one another, kind of all the one-anothering commands and teachings, particularly in the New Testament. And then mercy is all about the relationships we have with our neighbors, and really in the broadest sense of the word, our neighbor meaning literally the person that lives next door and across the street from us, but also our neighbor, uh, the way that Jesus tells it is in a parable about the Good Samaritan, and the question asked is, who is my neighbor? And he opens that definition up really broadly. It's not just the person that lives next to us, it's the person on the other side of the world who is nothing like us. So as we talk about uh, the need for creed in our lives, I want to frame that in light of these three core values. Our need for creed, so creed in our worship, creed and community, and creed and our mercy. So first, let's talk about the creed and our worship. Uh, When we hear the word worship, what I think often comes to mind for many of us is something emotional, or something experiential. And though emotions and experiences are very much part of worship, uh, fundamentally worship is actually much deeper than that. It's something different than that. It's actually all about, and you heard Steve share a little bit about that earlier, it's all about attributing worth or honor or glory to someone or something. And so worship really has everything to do with belief. It has everything to do with trust. Because to worship someone or something is to express trust in the object of that worship. And really all of us, we don't tend to think about it this way, but all of us are worshipers. So regardless of religious affiliation, regardless of worldview, regardless of whether you would say you are a worshiper or not, we all place worth and honor and trust in some ultimate object that serves as really the central kind of fixed point of our lives. And likewise, we could also say not only are we all worshipers, but we are all believers in something. We are all trusters in something. 
And therein, I think, lies the great contradiction that we might live out as men and women in a day characterized by a crisis of trust. Because in this crisis of trust, we claim no one or nothing else is worthy of trust, but by doing so, we actually in that very moment declare that we trust ourselves. Right? A crisis of trust is only possible if we have an incredibly high sense of trust in ourselves, which is exactly, I think, what characterizes our culture at present. The last couple of weeks, I've referenced some research that's come out in the last year that says the vast majority of Americans look to self-fulfillment as the ultimate measure of moral good. So it's essentially, uh, we as a community, as a culture say, what I want, what I think I need, um, that is what will lead to the best and highest good. And not only are we saying that when we say self-fulfillment is our highest uh, measure of moral good, we're saying, I trust my gauge for what I want and need. I trust myself to provide the grid that will attain the highest moral good for all of society. We're saying in that, I trust myself most. And if I can convince you of of one thing this morning, it's the danger of that. It's the danger of that. Uh, We need to cultivate a healthy sense of distrust in ourselves. See, as worshipers, as trusters, regardless of of what you place your worship or your trust in today, we need an anchor for that worship and that trust. And the anchor needs to go a lot deeper than me. right? My anchor has to go a lot deeper than me. In another letter that he writes to the church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul uses the the metaphor and the picture of a ship. And a ship, think about the, 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 the futility of this, a ship cannot be its own anchor. It can't be its own anchor. If it tries, it gets tossed to and fro by the waves. It gets, as Paul says, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So in reality, I make a terrible anchor for myself. Anchors need to go down deep. They need to go into the bedrock. They need to be something that, that tethers us so that we don't get tossed by the wind and the waves or just what I think or feel in a given moment. And this is why we need creed. We need a deeper and better anchor for our trust. And creedal statements like the one that we have here in 1 Corinthians 15 and the Apostles' Creed, they serve as better and deeper anchors. And they are there, just as Paul says in verses 1 and 2, so that we can stand, so that we can hold fast in whatever happens, whatever turbulence comes in life. Now specifically, what is the the anchor that Paul is referring to? Paul says it's the gospel that he preached, which the Corinthian church then received. And then in verses 3 through 5, he offers this really succinct summary of core Christian faith, uh, what he calls matters of first importance. And he says that they're these, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So perhaps having in mind Scriptures in the Old Testament, when he says Scriptures, he's referring to Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, So maybe passages like Isaiah 52 and 53 that talk about a servant who's going to suffer. Or maybe Zechariah 13. He's saying at the core of the Christian faith is this truth, this matter of first importance, that Jesus died in our place for our sins in order to reconcile us to God. He says that Jesus was buried. And so what he says as he says that is that Jesus was truly dead. He didn't just faint, didn't just pass out because of the pain or swoon on the cross. He died, he was buried in a tomb says that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. 
So perhaps, again, maybe referring to the end of of Isaiah 53, or maybe a passage like Psalm 16 about uh, God not letting his Holy One see corruption. What Paul says there is that death could not hold Jesus, that Jesus rose from the dead. He was victorious over death itself. And then he says that he appeared to Cephas, the Apostle Peter, and then to the Twelve, and then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, and on and on to the people that he appeared to. So Paul accomplishes really two things, I think, with these these words. One, he establishes a core of Christian belief. So a lot of you have experience in some measure or another with the Christian faith. There are thousands of specific convictions and beliefs that you and I could talk about in relation to the Christian faith. Everything from uh, what do Christians believe about baptism, because we have a range of views on that, to what do Christians believe about ghosts, because we have a range of views on that. And in one sense, um, all of those discussions are, are important, right? Because they all flow from our understanding of who God is and how, what he's revealed about himself and about the world that he created. But on the other hand, there are things that are central tenets of the Christian faith apart from which we couldn't rightfully call ourselves Christians at all. And Paul here speaks of the gospel that is saving the Corinthian church. And the implication there is that there would be gospels or false gospels that don't save. Christians might have a a wide range of views about what we believe about ghosts, but if if you don't believe in these matters of first importance like the substitutionary death of Jesus, you know, he died for our sins, Uh, if we don't believe in his bodily resurrection from the dead, that actually puts us outside of the saving faith of the gospel. And this is why for centuries, the Apostles' Creed has been used as a tool to teach and to, in the old school sense of the word, examine new adherence to the faith. It it focuses on these matters of first importance. It focuses on these core matters of our faith apart from which we're not Christians. And so one of the things that we can come to appreciate, if we don't already, about the Apostles' Creed is that it majors on the majors and it leaves these other matters, though they all are important, to be addressed in light of what we do with these matters of first importance. We, we, we wrestle with the core of Christian faith first, and we wrestle with the other things as an outflow of those. So Paul establishes that core. The second thing he does here is that he establishes that core as trustworthy. He's saying here, really in a nutshell, this is true. The gospel is true. Right? This wasn't done in a vacuum. Uh, this wasn't a secret Jesus' life and ministry was public. His death was public. His resurrection was public. It wasn't just Peter and the other apostles, the other 11, who saw the risen Jesus and then made up a story together. It was upwards of 500 people at once. And Paul says most of them are still alive, though some of them have died. He's really saying there, go investigate this for yourself. You can talk to the eyewitnesses, and there are many of them. So this is really the value of Paul's words the value of the Apostles' Creed. They are trustworthy testimonies to matters of first importance. And they locate our trust, they locate our worship in something a lot deeper and stronger than ourselves. I love the way that Rowan Williams, he was the the 104th Archbishop of Canterbury from 2002 to 2012. I love the way that he put it. He says this, I believe in God, the first statement of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, is the beginning of a series of statements about where I find the anchorage of my life, where I find solid ground, where I find home. So as we think about the creed in relation to our worship, let's first recognize we are worshipers, we are trusters, 
And let's have a healthy sense of distrust in ourselves, not attempting to be our own anchor for our lives. Instead, let's anchor our deepest convictions and trust outside of ourselves in the God who has revealed himself and whose revelation is faithfully encapsulated for us in places like the Apostles' Creed. Second, let's talk about the creed and community. The creed and community. Um, We also tend to think about community being primarily about what we do, right? We love one another. We pursue deep and authentic relationships with one another. And of course, um, all of that is true. But at the core, community is not something that we do. It's actually something that we are. Paul writes these words to the brothers and sisters. He writes these words to the Christians in the church at Corinth. And all of the yous in this passage are plural. He's speaking to a group of people who share a common identity. And namely, that common identity is that all these men and women are those who are being saved through the work of Jesus in the ongoing sense of the word. They're those who have been rescued by him. They are Christians. They are saved. But there's an ongoing sense that Jesus keeps and preserves his his people. And as Jesus unites us with himself, as he saves us, he also unites us with one another. Christians share not only a common identity, they also share this common experience as those who are saved by Jesus. They also share a common future as those who will be fully and finally united with Jesus for all of eternity. So I would suggest to you this, then, because of what the Apostles' Creed affirms, it creates strengthens and preserves community. Just as the, as the work of Jesus transforms each and every one of us individually, but it never transforms us in isolation. Like we don't experience our salvation as islands that are all separate from one another. We're actually saved into a people. Uh, Titus talks about Jesus purifying a people for himself. Just like that, as each one of us individually affirm, I believe in the Apostles' Creed, it creates this collective we believe of the people of God. And with this as our shared identity, we have then really a great foundation for deep and genuine relationships of love for one another, of care for one another, and actually, if you'd let me be so audacious, for trust in one another. Rowan Williams, who I quoted earlier, says it this way. He has a great quote on this, too. He says, You might even say that the creed tells us why we can trust each other in the Christian community. We're looking in the same direction. We're working with the same hopes and the same assumptions. So how do you and I, as fellow Christians, if if you are here and you are a Christian, um, how do we trust one another in a society, in a day, characterized by a crisis of trust? Well, without downplaying the need for prudence and wisdom in relationships, which is always important, our shared identity lets us look at other Christians and say, I trust you more than anything because I trust God. And not only that, I trust God's work in you and I trust God's work through you. And my invitation to us as a church is that we would own that and that we would appreciate this every time that we recite the Apostles' Creed together. I don't know what tradition kind of you come from or you've been part of in your church experience, but uh, anytime we say something or do something liturgical, uh, we do something every week, it, be- it can become empty, it can become rote or meaningless. The Apostles' Creed can simply be repetitive words that we say because that's what we're supposed to do when we gather in a church setting. But what I hope you'll begin to see is that every time we affirm the Apostles' Creed together, it's an opportunity for us to be renewed 
and to be strengthened in the shared identity we have as God's people. It's an opportunity to celebrate the work that God has done, not just in me or in you individually, but in us together. Right? We can say together, this is our God. We are his people. We believe. A scholar named Luke Timothy Johnson talks about how reciting the creed together actually helps us enjoy and grow in Christian community. He says this, In a world that celebrates individuality, Christians are actually doing something together when they say the creed. In an age that avoids commitment, they pledge themselves to a set of convictions and thereby to each other. In a culture that rewards novelty and creativity, they use words written by others long ago. In a society where accepted wisdom changes by the minute, they claim that some truths are so critical that they must be repeated over and over again. In a throwaway consumerist world, they accept, preserve, and continue tradition. Reciting the creed is thus a countercultural act. And as this community, called to be a counterculture of salt and light in the world, not only is the creed meaningful and significant for a community of Christians with one another, it also is then meaningful for our pursuit of mercy, and love for our neighbor in our world. So lastly, let's talk about that, the creed and our mercy. When we talk about mercy, uh, at least in the way we use that concept and that word at, at liberty, it's all about both showing and telling about the mercy that we ourselves have received from God. So mercy is a pursuit of words. Uh, we speak about what Jesus has done. Uh, it's also a pursuit of deeds, Uh, We serve others, we bless others, we love others, just as God has served and blessed and loved each one of us. And I'm sure that we have people here today who are uh, in all kinds of different places when it comes to belief in Jesus. And my bet is that especially if you're someone who doesn't claim to be a Christian, you're just here and you're exploring, you're considering these things, one of the things that's probably easier for you to appreciate about the Christian faith is when Christians pursue the good of others when they're actually using their lives and their actions and their words to to serve and bless and and for the flourishing of society. In other words, for for you, it's probably easier to appreciate the deeds aspects of the Christian faith. But maybe the words piece is a little bit tougher. Some of the, the claims of exclusivity where Jesus says that there's only one way to the Father and it's through him. Or um, some of his claims where he says, I'm not just a good moral example, I'm not just a good teacher, I actually am God in the flesh, and, and commands people to obey him and to follow him. What I want to suggest this morning is that those things are really inseparable from one another, the words and the deeds. A couple hundred years ago, the great abolitionist uh, William Wilberforce, as he labored to put an end to the slave trade in Britain, he talked about what he called the fatal habit of considering Christian morality apart from Christian belief. And he spoke about how what he called the peculiar doctrines, which were his words, of Christianity, like the depravity, the sinful depravity of mankind, uh, divine judgment, right, God's judgment, the substitutionary work of Jesus. He talked about how all of those things are essential for the pursuit of Christian morality. Why would William Wilberforce say something like that? Well, without the belief side of things, without the word side of things, we're ultimately pointing to ourselves as the hero of the story. Right? We're, we're ultimately serving other people and doing good in the world, but it ends up just being a roundabout way of focusing attention back on myself and the good that I do 
in the world. Rather than inviting someone else into what I myself need and am experiencing, I'm just serving someone and, making, and causing them to look, to look at me. And it also withholds from other people what Jesus claims is not just the most joy-filled, satisfying way to live your life now, but really the only way to align yourself with the cosmic and universal scope of God's redemption and reconciliation in the world. See, what we believe shapes us, and it shapes us very deeply. It will be what fuels our outward actions. And really, only being loved and shown mercy ourselves through the work of Jesus is sufficient motivation to empower us, to sustain us, to love and show mercy to others. And I'd invite you to think about it this way. Christians don't just want to have a social conscience and pursue the good of others because that's fashionable and trendy and acceptable right now in our day and age. I think by and large that's appreciated in our culture when people serve the good of others and care for other people. But there's no depth to that if that's where it stops. Right? What happens in the day that that's not trendy or fashionable anymore? And what I love is that in spite of a lot of bad examples in the history of Christianity and the history of the church we could look at, in spite of those, for century after century, Christians have been those who pursue love and care for others. Whether that's in style in that cultural moment or whether it's not. And the reason that's been sustained for so many years is because all of the outward actions of Christians are rooted in a shared story, are rooted in a shared truth, a shared identity that we have. We want other people to experience, to, to not just experience love and care in this life, although we very much want that for people. As Christians, we actually want other people to experience the very same mercy that we ourselves have received. And for that to happen, people in our neighborhoods, uh, people in our workplaces, people in our schools, people in our own region, this nation, all over the world, they don't simply need an experience of God's kingdom. They don't simply need to be in proximity or near to God's kingdom. They need to actually enter God's kingdom and receive his mercy themselves. How does that happen? Over and over again in Scripture, we see that it happens through belief, through trust, through faith. And so the creed, the Apostles' Creed, the, the creedal statements like 1 Corinthians 15, they are central to our pursuit of mercy because they not only articulate what you and I believe, they also lay out what we long for other people to believe in order that they too might enter God's kingdom, that they too might receive God's mercy. Okay, one more thought here. Um, as the creed shapes us, it also frees us to send one another into the world without fear of competition and without the cult of personality. So some of the biggest obstacles, and I'm sure some of you have experienced this firsthand, um, some of the biggest obstacles to our pursuit of mercy and loving other people in the world are our own egos and our own arrogance. Right, everybody has to start their own thing. Uh, nobody wants to partner with anybody else. And every other church and every other ministry, every other organization, other Christians themselves, they become threats because they're all competition. In light of Paul talking about a gospel that saves, implying that there are gospels that don't save, it is really important that we know and want people to actually hear something that's trustworthy and true. The problem is, is that you and I often go far beyond that. And so it's not just these matters of first importance Every hill becomes a hill for us to die on. 
right? Second, third, fourth order matters to even stylistic preferences of how we're going to do things together. The church in Corinth actually had a huge problem with divisions like this. Um, Earlier in the letter, Paul addresses divisions in the church where there are these different factions and they they, they all claim an allegiance to one of the different apostolic leaders that have been in Corinth. So some say, I follow Paul. And others of them say, I follow Apollos. And others say, I follow Cephas. I follow Peter. And some others just say, I follow Christ. Which is like the trump card, right? Like, how do you, how do you beat that? I follow Christ. It's like uh, the first instance in history of a non-denominational church, right? We're better than everybody because we don't claim allegiance to anybody else. We just follow Jesus, right? I can say that because we are a non-denominational church. I've, I've made fun of myself more than anyone in that. Um, Listen to how Paul, though, closes out. Listen to how he closes out this passage. Whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now think about that from Paul's standpoint. Nobody pays a higher cost to preserve the integrity of the gospel and spread it to the ends of the earth than Paul. Nobody pays as high a cost as him. So what frees Paul up to say and actually mean that? It's, I think it's the creedal statement of verses 3-5. through five. He's confident that people will hear the one true gospel message, whether they hear it from him, or from Apollos, or from Peter, or even from Jesus himself. And so Paul says, what I want more than anything is that other people hear and believe. And in the exact same way, the creed frees you and I to rejoice in the advance of the gospel, whether we have anything to do with it ourselves or not. We can rejoice in the work of God. We can rejoice in the work of others, whether that's in our own backyard or on the other side of the world, wherever these foundational truths are preserved and passed along. Now, that doesn't mean we never talk about the other topics and issues that flow from these. Of course, we're going to talk about those. But that doesn't mean we neglect diving in deeply to what Paul speaks of elsewhere, the whole counsel of God. That's all important. But it does mean that you and I should probably rejoice a lot more than we do in the advances made by other people. We should rejoice a lot more than we probably do in the advances made by other people who aren't part of our tribe. So all told, this is why we have a great need for creed in our, in our lives. It forms our worship. It establishes, it strengthens our community. It shapes and it motivates and it sustains our mercy. And it does all of that more than anything, because it points us and reminds us over and over again of the source of life, the source of our salvation. It points us back over and over again to God the Father Almighty and Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and God the Holy Spirit. And so just as Paul received the gospel, may we receive the truths of the gospel as spelled out for us in 1 Corinthians 15 in the Apostles' Creed. And may we be people of belief More than we ever trust ourselves, may we trust God. And if you're not in a place where you're able to do that today, then I respect you and I appreciate your honesty and I appreciate your integrity. And I'm truly honored that you would take some time just out of your life to be here and to consider and and think about these things. My invitation to you would just be to use the coming weeks as we walk, walk through the Apostles' Creed together to explore and to ask the good and hard questions that you've wrestled with and to bring uh, the doubts that you have, the doubts that you find in the depths of your soul. What keeps you from trusting in God? It would be a joy, it would be a privilege to, to walk through that with you wherever you find yourself. For those who do believe, 
Uh, may we really come in, this, in the course of this series to appreciate the gift of what we have in the Apostles' Creed. And as it points to this God in whom we trust, may we be ever shaped by it in our worship, in our community, and in our mercy. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, you are the God who has saved us through Jesus. You are the God who is saving us. Moment by moment, day by day, you are doing the renewing and ongoing work of of making us a people. And I pray that we we would own and appreciate the gift that we have in creedal statements like in 1 Corinthians 15 and the Apostles' Creed. I pray that we would rejoice, God, in the truth that you have revealed, that we might know it, that we might proclaim it together that it might strengthen uh, not only our individual worship, but our community life together, and it might fuel our pursuits of loving and serving people in in our own region and to the ends of the earth. Would you help us to to believe? Uh, Would you show us in our lives those places where we have too much trust in ourselves and where our skepticism is rooted in the fact that we have a lot of confidence in the way we see the world, may you point out our blind spots. May, we, may our anchor go ever deeper into you and not into ourselves, not into self-fulfillment. May we look outside of ourselves rather than within for the source of ultimate truth and meaning in life. May we look to you. And I pray that as we come to this table this morning, that we would again, in a, in a tangible way, look to you, Jesus, and see the work that you have accomplished for us and be renewed in your grace. We pray that in your name. Amen.